This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. In October of 2019, media outlets broke a surprising story. The U.S. Air Force had just landed an unmanned plane in the dead of night at NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. It wasn't a run-of-the-mill test flight either. The X-37B shuttle had been in orbit for a record 780 days, almost three times the amount of time it had been designed to withstand. This feat astonished astrophysicists. But the announcement garnered more concern than applause. People were disturbed that the Air Force had been circling a military shuttle over their heads without their knowledge for two years, no less. What's more, though the X-37B had flown previous missions, the details of this most recent expedition were kept under lock and key. No one besides the Air Force knew what it had been up to. Naturally, there was pressure for comment. But Randy Walden, director of the Air Force Rapid Capabilities Office, remained vague. He simply told the press that the X-37B had hosted Air Force Research Laboratory experiments and provided a ride for small satellites. Despite its ambiguity, the statement divulged a troubling detail. The satellites... No one knew what their purpose was. As if the clandestine nature of the mission wasn't alarming enough, the Air Force had not previously disclosed its satellite plan to the UN Registration Convention. In failing to do so, they had circumvented the standard procedure. As Jonathan McDowell, an astronomer from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, pointed out, it was the first time in history that Either the USA or Russia has blatantly flouted the convention. The total lack of adherence was outright devious, and it outlined a grave concern of the modern age. Are secret military space initiatives becoming the new normal? This is The Dark Side Of, a ParCast original a show where we will delve into the seedy underbelly of pop culture icons and historical events. We aim to expose the ugly truth behind cultural moments and public figures we hold most dear, proving that there is always more to the story than meets the eye. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm Kate. This is our 10th and final episode on the dark side of space. While the quest to put a man on the moon and explore the great beyond has always been a trophy on the shelves of U.S. history, we're digging just a little deeper into what really happened to get there. You can find all episodes of The Dark Side Of and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. 
Last week, we learned about deep space exploration and the multiple hazards of a voyage to Mars. This week, we'll examine the loose regulations surrounding outer space and how this hesitancy has enabled Space Force, the U.S. government's utilization of space for security and possible military action. Space has long been an arena for innovation, and the recent push for militarization and potential weaponization is undeniable. We'll be exploring the history of these initiatives, from sweeping missile defense systems to the particle beam technology of today. With such developments ongoing, the use of space as a battlefield is less of a question of how than when. Throughout this season, we've discussed America's attitude towards space as the final frontier, our last territory to conquer. To conquer something implies the use of force. Consider history's most famous conquerors, Alexander the Great, Julius Caesar, Napoleon Bonaparte. Each took their spoils through severe militaristic action. Space is shaping up to be no exception. And while no one is laying claim to outer space territories just yet, countries like America are actively looking to establish heightened security measures there. To do so requires some level of armament, ushering in the very complex problem of weaponization in space. To understand these origins, we will return once again to the famous Nazi scientist-turned-NASA expert, Werner von Braun. As Hitler's chief rocket scientist, Werner von Braun managed the construction of the catastrophic V-2 missiles that pummeled Western Europe during World War II. Despite the immense death and destruction wrought by the V-2s, von Braun's experience made him a popular person after the war. The U.S. Department of Defense readily poached him to develop their own Saturn rockets. His task was to out-innovate the Soviets during the space race, a technological contest within the broader scope of the Cold War. Not far behind the Department of Defense was the U.S. Air Force, whose commanders would become the first leaders at NASA. Without a doubt, early space technology and those developing it were cut straight from the military's cloth. In late 1957, Russia launched Sputnik, the first satellite in orbit. This threw Americans into a tizzy that a nuclear attack was just around the corner. By 1958, President Eisenhower had introduced a special agency, ARPA, the Advanced Research Projects Agency. It was a direct response to the ambiguous threat of Sputnik. ARPA would prove to outlive the space race, the Cold War, and all the policy changes in between. The agency is still alive and well in the throes of space today. It continues to serve as an outlet for the Department of Defense to expand their military resources into longer-term projects aimed at furthering technology and science. ARPA's position is a bit suspicious, though, as a military sector permitted to work on space projects alongside academic and civilian agencies, such as NASA. All in all, the Cold War was an eerie climate to be pursuing progress in space, given that nuclear tensions were at an all-time high. Seeing the possibility for one wrong move to end in destruction 
it was clear that guidelines were needed for space. Cue the Outer Space Treaty. In 1967, the three big U's, U.S., USSR, and the U.K., got together to hash out the details on what would become international space law. The U.S. and Russia were arguably the two nations with the most to lose, or gain, rather, and it appeared the U.K. was willing to serve as the moderator. The formal title of the Outer Space Treaty was a bit more long-winded. The Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, Including the Moon and Other Celestial Bodies. This treaty is still in effect today, with over 100 countries having joined. As deep space consultant Siggy Kafir told the Wall Street Journal in 2017, it's the Constitution and the Magna Carta of space law. This boilerplate list of House rules was increasingly necessary. Without it, there was a legitimate fear that space could turn into a territorial grab bag, similar to what happened with countries rushing to claim their portions of Antarctica in the early 20th century. And while the entirety of the treaty is important, two principles in particular deserve special attention. In 2017, space policy professor Henry Hertzfeld laid both of these quite bare. The first is that all nations should have equal access. Hertzfeld calls this the golden rule of space. Just because one country reaches space first doesn't guarantee that they should have exclusive or even superior rights to it. Instead, the Outer Space Treaty states that space should be reserved for peaceful exploration. It was to be, quote, a province for all mankind. Which is to say, space should not become an arena for open or controlled conflict, not a parking garage for weapons of mass destruction. The treaty's second crucial principle, as Hertzfeld put it, is don't do anything stupid. More specifically, don't do anything that will cause harm or get in the way of others in space. This notion was meant to bar nuclear weapons from space. However, that's essentially where the clarity ends. In retrospect, a good deal of the 1967 treaty's language had little option but to remain extremely vague. Much like the U.S. Constitution, it was trying to account for technology that didn't exist yet and world events that hadn't occurred. Take, for example, our current issues, like climate change or the debate of outsourcing mining to the moon. In the late 1960s, there was simply no way to predict these space-related conversations. Moreover, there was an undercurrent of caution, lest something be written into the treaty that actually prevented positive progress for space innovation. And so the treaty's ambiguity propped open the door for an exhaustive discussion about technicalities. Questions such as, what about putting weapons of mass destruction in space without fully achieving orbit? Or, what about weapons that wouldn't cause mass destruction began to circulate? These were questions to tow all the way up to the line without crossing it, and therefore break the treaty. And often, it was the U.S. doing the asking, in anticipation of exploiting any loopholes. In doing so, the U.S. was subverting the blind trust crucial to the early stages of international agreements. 
there's usually a consensus that participating nations should abide by both the letter and the spirit of the law. Unfortunately, the 1967 treaty has proven to be a classic case in which countries are only interested in heeding the words on the page, not the full scope of their intent. As the Wall Street Journal cunningly put it, in space, no one can hear you scheme. Coming up, one U.S. president unveils his plan for a strategic defense initiative, sending ripples of shock throughout the world. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to our story. The 1967 Outer Space Treaty was aimed at preventing a militarization of outer space. But it soon became clear that the treaty's loose framework wasn't enough to ease Cold War tensions between the U.S. and the USSR. Previously, both countries had relied on the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. If one country unleashed nuclear weapons, the other would do the same. It was a lose-lose scenario ensuring that neither side would actually take steps toward nuclear warfare. However, as the Cold War dragged on, both the U.S. and USSR developed anti-ballistic missile systems. With these defenses in place, destruction wasn't completely assured on either side. In light of this, President Richard Nixon and Russian General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev agreed on an arms control treaty. Colloquially known as the ABM Treaty, it was signed in May of 1972. With the ABM Treaty, a small dose of security was finally created between two countries exhausted by the anxiety of nuclear attack. It wasn't a detente, but it kept the minutes until midnight clock from striking the deadly 12-hour. But this bandage would fall off in the early 1980s, when President Ronald Reagan made a decision that severely departed from the ABM Treaty's guidance. With the Cold War stretching towards its fourth decade, the prospect of weapons in space had long been at the top of President Reagan's agenda. His vested interest in defense technology even went so far back as 1967, when he was still the governor of California. That year, Reagan paid a visit to nuclear physicist Edward Teller, who was at the time working at a lab founded by UC Berkeley. Reagan wanted to see what current offerings, like microwaves and lasers, were being retrofitted for specific use in aeronautic weaponry. As Reagan's second Secretary of State George Shultz later put it, that fateful meeting saw, quote, the first gleam in Ronald Reagan's eye of what later became the Strategic Defense Initiative. Still, his interest in the subject didn't come to fruition for another 10 years when Reagan visited the North American Air Defense Command in Colorado Springs in 1979. It was there he learned some unsettling news. After inquiring whether a Soviet missile could at all harm the bunker, 
and likely expecting a reassuring response, Reagan was told that the compound would simply be obliterated. Sure, they could track an incoming missile, but that would do little to stop its inevitable destruction. Reagan was flabbergasted. He staunchly replied, there must be something better than this. This determination would come to a head one evening four years later. On March 23, 1983, President Reagan settled in behind his desk at the Oval Office and announced a new national policy. It was called the Strategic Defense Initiative. The purpose, as stated by the president, was to create a more encompassing missile defense system to protect the United States. He wanted to assure the American public that a Soviet intercontinental ballistic missile would be rendered incapable of harming their U.S. mainland. President Reagan claimed this initiative would enable Americans to, quote, live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. Reagan envisioned staging this interception from outer space. The U.S. would launch laser technology that could easily zap down Soviet intercontinental ballistic missiles while en route. Such mechanics sounded impressive and wildly innovative, but therein lay the problem. Such technology didn't even exist, at least not yet. And in pledging to develop it, Reagan had roped NASA and the U.S. military into a promise they weren't sure if they could keep. President Reagan was well aware of all this, but he seemed to believe the technology could simply be created upon his asking for it. Moreover, he was determined to be the final champion of the American people against the Red Menace, to symbolize once and for all that America could prevail against any threat lobbed at them. In a telling show of tenacity, Reagan had not given his closest advisors much notice, if any, before his Oval Office address. This decision naturally backfired. Reagan's first Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, remembered that the Pentagon staff was extremely flustered after the announcement, asking, what the hell is strategic defense? Those in Congress were equally floored, if not angered, by the policy. As Senator Ted Kennedy griped, Reagan was exacerbating nuclear tensions using, quote, misleading Red Scare tactics and reckless Star Wars schemes. And thus, the cheeky pseudonym for a very scary policy was born, Star Wars. The press was keen to latch on to this alarming notion. The New York Times ran a scathing editorial after Reagan's speech. Essentially, it clarified that the brand of security the president was trying to sell the American public remains a pipe dream, a projection of fantasy into policy. There is no statesmanship in science fiction. More disturbing, however, was the effective dismantling of Cold War checks and balances that had been built during Nixon's presidency. Since the ABM Treaty in 1972, both the U.S. and Russia had limited their development of anti-ballistic missiles and launchers. In planning his Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, Reagan indicated that missile strikedowns from space were once again on the table. 
Understandably, the USSR didn't take kindly to this announcement. Less than a year after Reagan unrolled his program, an alleged 70% of all Soviet propaganda was dedicated to excoriating the SDI. And even to more neutral parties, America was looking very much like the aggressor. Physics Today noted that the French, for example, vociferously criticized the program because of concerns that it would lead to an arms race in space. Declassified documents from this era indicate that even Britain, America's most staunch ally, believed Reagan's plan was both unfeasible and reckless. Reagan remained in office for nearly six more years, during which time he continued to pump funding into the overambitious SDI program. But he could only champion his vision of missile-downing space-based lasers while he was president. Though the U.S. government would spend nearly $30 billion trying to materialize Reagan's Star Wars, according to History.com, the futuristic program remained just that, futuristic. Reagan's presidency concluded in early 1989, and his successors were quick to distance themselves from SDI. They certainly weren't going to promise any space lasers to the American public. Still, future presidents allowed the policy to loiter in the background. For example, the next president, George H.W. Bush, trimmed spending on Star Wars, but he by no means cut it loose. Instead, Bush tasked his U.S. Secretary of Defense, Dick Cheney, to put a positive spin on the newly reduced defense budget. And in 1989, Cheney claimed that SDI was alive and well. Meanwhile, a new Star Wars project known as Brilliant Pebbles was already in development. As the New York Times put it, big and clunky machines thrust into orbit in the hopes of stopping nuclear missiles were out of the picture, passé even. Brilliant Pebbles was to take their place. These were imagined as 10,000 to 100,000 teeny tiny space-based weapons capable of assailing an enemy's missile and destroying it. The old death by a million paper cuts tactic. These thousands of weapons, each about three feet long, would be stationed in orbit. They could receive deployment instructions via their own silicone computer chips, which would instruct them when to strike an incoming missile, not unlike a game of dodgeball. It was arguably more detailed than Reagan's initial SDI initiative, but that didn't mean it would be easier to execute. Still, once again, the U.S. government was hopeful that American innovators could rise to the occasion. In 1989, the hope was that Brilliant Pebbles technology could be perfected in two years and deployed in five. In what was to become a telling pattern for strategic defense, Brilliant Pebbles's miniaturized bells and whistles were greeted with skepticism, particularly from the FAS, the Federation of American Scientists. Their mission to this day is to use scientific analysis to protect against catastrophic threats to national and international security. The head of space policy for the FAS at the time identified a portentous track record. The very same companies that had promised President Reagan mystical X-ray lasers for Star Wars 
were now the ones insisting brilliant pebbles would work. Not only had these companies not delivered on previous technology, they were arguably fueled by self-interest. Should Pebbles be canceled, they'd lose their paychecks. Pebbles started as a budget-conscious way to continue the SDI, with early quotes for the system vacillating between 10 and $20 billion. But it quickly failed to be a thrifty solution. By 1990, the ballpark figure had exploded to nearly $55 billion. Critics were skeptical of everything from the expense to the actual execution. As one congressman from the House Armed Services Committee grimly noted to the New York Times, brilliant pebbles looked a lot more like loose marbles. Necessity would ultimately be the death of brilliant pebbles. By late 1991, the Cold War had officially ended, closing the long and harrowing chapter of nuclear tension between the U.S. and Russia. To keep Pebbles eating through funding, despite the SDI's delivery record, seemed especially wasteful. With scientists, legislators, and international allies all casting shades of doubt, the new president, Bill Clinton, made the choice to dismantle Brilliant Pebbles in 1993. This was not the first time the pendulum would swing in the opposite direction for Space Force policy. While every U.S. president from Reagan to Obama has secured funding for missile defense, under their various program names, certain administrations have pushed this agenda harder than others. Some have even resisted. President Bill Clinton, for example, was known for his desire to end the so-called Star Wars era. In the fall of 2000, before leaving office, Clinton announced that he would not authorize construction of a missile shield to block intercontinental ballistic missiles, another ongoing SDI topic throughout the 1990s. Clinton's reasoning was that it was simply too dangerous to plunge headlong into a $60 billion program that would violate a landmark arms control treaty with Moscow. After years of playing cat and mouse with the Soviets, this was a rare yet welcome choice. However, Clinton was on his way out of office. Even if he did lobby to cancel the SDI, which he did not, there would have been no guarantee that his successor wouldn't immediately revive the program. So with a pared-down SDI left lingering in the balance, Clinton turned over the Oval Office to a new president, George W. Bush. Coming up, Bush assumes a bold position on the future of strategic defense in space. Now, back to the story. In 2000, George W. Bush received the Republican nomination for president. He took a stance on Space Force policy which mirrored that of his father, former President Bush Sr. Bush Jr. boasted, I welcome the opportunity to act where they, the Clinton administration, have failed to lead by developing and deploying effective missiles to protect all 50 states and our friends and allies. The early 2000s had certainly ushered in a jarring mixture of paranoia and patriotism. After the 9-11 terrorist attacks, concerns about national safety weighed heavily on the average American household as well as the White House. In light of this, continuing the Strategic Defense Initiative seemed crucial. 
Under Bush, the initiative became known simply as Missile Defense. The name itself was crafty. It seemed to indicate that keeping the policy going was standard protocol. After all, shouldn't every country have a system to protect itself from deadly weapons? And soon the Bush administration announced that the U.S. was pulling out of their old 1972 anti-ballistic missile treaty with Russia. This was an exceptionally telling choice. While Presidents Reagan and Bush Sr. had each circumvented the spirit of the 1972 treaty, neither of them had gone so far as to revoke it. In doing so now, Bush was proving keen to develop a new anti-missile defense system, something befitting this new millennia. In October of 2006, the Bush administration released its Doctrine on National Space Policy. This was becoming a routine initiative for each new president, with the previous Clinton administration having done the same. It signaled that space was now a cemented sector of national defense and engineering. As such, each administration wanted to document their unique stance. Still, Bush's policy was the most U.S.-centric stance on outer space, arguably since the Reagan era. It summarized that not only would the U.S. place itself first in regard to protecting its assets and advancements in space, but it would reject any international restrictions on how the U.S. intended to use outer space. Meaning that should the U.S. choose to weaponize space to protect so-called vital U.S. interests, it would do so without consulting other world powers. As Bush's space policy stated, in this new century, those who effectively utilize space will enjoy added prosperity and security and will hold a substantial advantage over those who do not. It was a rather inflexible statement. This president was utilizing his power to secure substantial advantages for the U.S., regardless of international impact. This unrelenting policy fared grimly for the rest of the world, and it undermined the U.S.'s signature on the 1967 Outer Space Treaty. To all the other countries involved, America was reneging on the most basic agreement of the space age. Without little doubt, this posited the future of space as being not only militarized, but weaponized. Militarized versus weaponized. Two similar-sounding words, and yet they make all the difference. With the release of the space policy in 2006, it serves to truly dig into what each means. To militarize something is to make it at least somewhat military in character. Thus, outer space has been militarized ever since the space race, when government militaries became involved in creating space technology. To launch military assets, like satellites or other military-supervised technology, was one thing. But to launch armaments or weapons infrastructure ready to cause harm or damage is quite another. This is weaponization. Physics professor Alvin Saperstein summarized this well in his 2002 paper. In it, he explained why our interstellar technology is inextricably tied to the military and can beget more military conflict between nations. Says Saperstein, We use space for communication, 
for surveillance and targeting over the battlefields, for weather prediction, for precise mapping and positioning of our own and opposition military assets, for early warning of missile and air attacks, and for general military, economic, and technological intelligence worldwide. Thus, space is militarized, though not yet weaponized. Still, as Saperstein notes, outer space has taken on a decidedly U.S.-led narrative. America often sees space as our country's sanctuary, a region to further our progress and exacerbate our competitions with other nations, all without actually fighting. Other countries have taken up this refrain. In 2008, more evidence surfaced that Russia and China are advancing their own space programs. This not only fed into the historical undercurrent of distrust between the U.S. and Russia, it introduced China as a capable new player. Each powerful country eyed the others, worried about an impending clash in space. With this in mind, at the 2008 UN Conference on Disarmament, China and Russia submitted a joint proposal to define and prohibit the proliferation of weapons in space and provided definitions of prohibited weapons. Unlike the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, the proposal clearly sought to close the existing loopholes that were being taken advantage of. According to the New York Times, it was a much-needed draft which would clearly fill gaps in existing law, create conditions for further exploration and use of space, and strengthen general security and arms control. In particular, the proposal defined prohibited weapons as those which could be specially produced or converted to destroy, damage, or disrupt the normal functioning of objects in outer space, on the Earth, or in the Earth's atmosphere. Russia and China's proposal even went so far as to suggest barring any other weapons that could harm or eliminate populations or elements of Earth's biosphere, an environmentally conscious addition. After years of operating without guidelines, these rules finally sounded like a hopeful path forward. Was it potentially the agreement that could move us beyond decades of passive antagonism in space? In the end, the answer was no. As the New York Times reported, the Bush administration stated, there is no arms race in space and therefore no need for a treaty. The statement was unpalatable for a variety of reasons. Not only did the White House confirm it had no interest in any treaty that would attempt to curb or limit its access to space, it was denying that its current activities had warranted the need for such a treaty in the first place. The country that had been the first to put a man on the moon was clear. It wouldn't be first to turn over its autonomy. This strident attitude set the tone for the next two space-oriented resolutions on the horizon. One was an existing UN motion known as PEROS, the Prevention of an Arms Race in Space. Though early talks on this motion span back to the 1980s, the process of moving it from discussion to resolution was slow. It even disappeared for some time. When Peros did gain enough traction to come to a vote in 2008, it looked like there was a possibility to do at least some damage control for the failed disarmament resolution. According to the Nuclear Threat Initiative Group, a Peros Treaty would complement and reaffirm the importance of the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, 
It would prevent any nation from gaining a military advantage in outer space. At the annual UN vote, the United States once again said, no thanks. One last proposal remained. That same year, in 2008, the EU suggested a space code of conduct. This was more geared towards the technicalities of maneuvering spacecraft and tidying up after one space junk, an unglamorous but necessary bit of housekeeping for future space missions. Of all the proposals so far, this was the most practical and did the least to bar certain countries from space weaponization. Unfortunately, it received the most naysayers. It was simultaneously rejected by the U.S., Russia, and China. None of the major countries interested in space expansion could reach an agreement on the use of weapons in space, leaving international legislation to crumble to the wayside. With this final grim vote, it appeared that each country had spoken their peace. Self-interest was the only interest they would champion in space. So where did all these stalemates leave us? Unfortunately, kicking the ball down the field into the next decade with unsurprising results. In 2015, the U.S. Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act was ratified with bipartisan support in Congress. Broadly, it argued that the United States could largely circumvent the 1967 Outer Space Treaty that curbed weapons in space. It was yet another instance of blatantly defying the treaty. The hope that space could be an equal opportunity region was all but buried. And this decision timed rather eerily with the rise of a frightening new military sector, anti-satellite weapons, or ASATs. Though the technology of early anti-satellite systems dates back to the 1950s and 60s, the past 15 years have seen a renewed interest in this machinery, specifically by the various international superpowers with satellites in space, like the US, Russia, India, and China. While ASAT systems are based on Earth, their purpose is to destroy space objects, namely satellites, in orbit. At face value, ASATs don't seem as aggressive as the technology once proposed by President Reagan to shoot down large intercontinental ballistic missiles. However, the way we communicate on Earth has rapidly changed over the past four decades, and our reliance on satellites has exploded. From our cell phones to our navigation, they mesh into nearly every aspect of our daily routines. Without them, our entertainment, transportation, security, and connectivity evaporate. And the majority of world satellites supplying our data operate in LEO, low Earth orbit, which happens to be the specific zone most in danger of being obliterated by ASATs. An unchecked expansion of these weapons would make it easy to target nearly any single satellite belonging to any country positioned in low Earth orbit. As such, an ASAT could deliberately destroy the orbiting satellites of a rival country, therefore crippling its communication systems back on Earth. Theoretically, an attack on U.S. satellites would cripple the country's ability not only to respond to a threat, but to perform basic security functions. We would be flying blind. 
This pervasive and terrifying fear all but propels each country to prepare to defend itself against another country's assets. No one wants to be caught negligent and suffer grave consequences. It's no surprise then that the policy of strategic defense has recently returned to the forefront of space discussions. As of the fall of 2019, the U.S. Department of Defense was back to floating ideas for strategic defense and how it could destroy ballistic missiles using space-based technology. One concept in particular drew attention. Unlike brilliant pebbles, it lacked an intriguing name. It was simply called a neutral particle beam. The particle beam concept would allow neutrons to be accelerated at nearly the speed of light, then directed towards a target. Once the beam encounters its mark, its neutrons collide with the protons of this other object, creating heat. Unlike a laser, which only burns the surface, this beam would singe through its target, either setting alight its fuel reserve or simply melting it. Allegedly, there was some talk of having this weapon tested from orbit by 2023, just three years from now. That may seem shockingly soon, but the Pentagon has been dabbling in particle beam engineering since 1989. In light of the secrecy surrounding recent technology, such as the X-37B missions, this beam could be far closer to utilization than we know. And if particle beams become the new normal for asserting dominance in space, it would appear the most harrowing years may indeed lie ahead of us. This is especially seen in the development of Space Force, the name for the United States Space Warfare Service Branch. Just recently, in December of 2019, Space Force became the sixth and newest branch of the U.S. Armed Forces. The quietness of this event indicates clearly that we have long since surpassed the milestone of space militarization, and the acquiescence towards it signals that the future of space weaponization is close at hand, inevitable even. If the recent years have shown anything, it is that world powers are unwilling to step away from the brink of space warfare. This is made all the more complicated by the fact that the line between innovation and weaponization is faint. The same technology that could help a country create the next breakthrough in space may also serve to antagonize its peers. And yet, our best hope on Earth remains that international diplomacy intervenes, ushering in clear regulations. As such, a renewed sense of urgency is desperately needed to prevent one country from taking the upper hand. Either the players in this space era reach a collective agreement on the future, or our galaxy becomes, in more ways than one, a final frontier. The last battlefield on which human grievances are settled and human errors are laid bare. Thanks for listening to our season on the dark side of space. Join us next week as we begin a whole new adventure. We're stepping back to revisit an era of recent nostalgia. However, the decade is far more fraught with anxiety and grim tales than we'd like to remember. Join us 
as we venture into the dark side of the 1990s. You can find more episodes of The Dark Side Of for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. Just open the app and type The Dark Side Of in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. The Dark Side Of was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of The Dark Side Of was written by Mackenzie Moore, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. <laughs>